the Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Hello and welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. In this show, this week, we're going to be discussing neuropathology and why this area is essential in dementia research. We'll hear about how the field helps to identify changes in the brain, how it can help guide development of targeted treatments, and how our brilliant guests use it to provide critical insights into disease progression to aid diagnosis and therapy advancements. Hello, I'm Dr. Kama Amin Ali. I'm Senior Lecturer at Teesside University, and it's a pleasure to be hosting this show. Joining me to talk about their work and what we can learn from neuropathology are three amazing scientists. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Tamarin Lashley from University College London, Dr. Laura Palmer from the University of Bristol, and Dr. Daniel Erskine from Newcastle University. Hi, everyone. Hi, yeah. Hi. So let's start off by doing some proper introductions. So Tamarin, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So yes, I'm Tamarin Lashley, um, based at uh, UCL. Um, so I've been working in the neuropathology field for over 25 years now. It makes me sound really old. <laughs> um, so I started off working as a research technician at Queen Square Brain Bank, um, and then I've done all various roles at the Brain Bank over the years, uh, but then decided to, uh, running my research alongside that, had uh, a junior and senior fellowship from Alzheimer's Research UK. Uh, all based, again, around using post-mortem tissue to try and understand neuro various neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative diseases better, and then was promoted to Professor of Neuroscience oh, three years ago now, so I run my own team. Still work closely with Queen Square Brain Bank, but I'm not actually affiliated with Queen Square Brain Bank anymore, but the main focus of my research is still based around the use of post-mortem brain tissue. Thanks, Tamarin. So, Laura, would you like to introduce yourself next? So, I'm Laura. I'm the manager of the Southwest Dementia Brain Bank based in Bristol. I've also been there. This is about to be my 20th year. The Brain Bank is this amazing resource of post-mortem brain tissue from people both with dementia, but also from other um, neurological conditions such as Parkinson's disease, but also from older people who weren't affected by dementia. The main aim of the Brain Bank and therefore my role is to provide researchers with access to this tissue, all in the hopes of understanding dementia better. Thank you, Laura. And finally, Dan, can you go next? Hi, I'm Daniel Erskine. I'm at Newcastle University. I've been at Newcastle University for quite a long time and there for about 12 years now. Um, I did my PhD here. So a bit like Tamarin, I had an Alzheimer's Research UK Junior Fellowship. I'm now on a senior fellowship, and I also got appointed to senior lecturer uh, relatively recently as well. So I run my own team at Newcastle, and we're really interested in alpha-synuclein and Lewy body disease is a particular one. And most of this work is with postmortem brain tissue, which is what, of course, we're looking forward to chatting about today. Thanks, Dan. And thank you so much to all of you for um, joining us today. It's great to have you with us. So for those who have read my blogs, you'll understand why I'm hosting today is because this is an area that I'm really passionate about having worked myself in neuropathology for around 10 years now or so, focusing on uh, dementia related brain diseases, um, broadly speaking. 
I started off working with animal models of Alzheimer's disease, looking at neuropathological changes and cognitive impairment associated with the disease. This then led to a focus on using human postmortem brain tissue to look at vascular changes and neuroinflammation and how those things might contribute to the risk of dementia uh, following stroke. I would say in the last four years or so, I've developed an interest in the neuropathological changes and again, specifically neuroinflammation following traumatic brain injury and again, how this can increase the risk of dementia in later life. So with introductions done, we can now get down to it. For those who don't work in labs, it's probably really important to start off with introducing our listeners to what neuropathology is and to give some background to why it's particularly useful in researching dementia. I would say that pathology can be broadly described as the study of diseases, and this can be using living or postmortem tissue. But neuropathology specifically is about pathology of brain diseases. And we can kind of separate neuropathology into two categories. So we've got diagnostic neuropathology. This can involve, for example, a tissue biopsy to diagnose cancer in someone who's living, or it can be post-mortem to determine what neurodegenerative disease was the cause of someone's dementia. And then we've got also experimental neuropathology, which is the other category. It's what we're kind of all involved in now or have been at some point in our careers and that's more concerned with studying the causes and the mechanisms of specific diseases as well as adaptations to injury. Now that we have a broad understanding of what neuropathology is let's find out about our guest specific research areas. Tamarin let's start with you can you tell us about your research and the specific areas of neuropathology that you're interested in? Yeah sure so Currently, my research is focused around, well, my team's research is focused around frontal temporal dementias um, and looking at RNA binding proteins and their involvement in that group of diseases. But over the years, I guess my research has touched many of the different neurodegenerative diseases. I think because I've been quite fortunate to have been in the discipline at the time where lots of things have been discovered. So I started out working on familial British and Danish dementias. So was working on those brains when the actual mutation was identified. So we could actually see the underlying pathology for the first time, which I find quite exciting. So you're the first person to see what is actually causing that disease in that brain. Then moving on to, I sort of dabbled a bit with Parkinson's disease, but unlike Daniel, I don't find alpha-synuclein that exciting. Sorry, Dan. Um, So moved on to frontal temporal dementia and again, was working in the area of frontal temporal dementia when tau, TDP, C9 and all the major sort of players in that field were identified. So had the opportunity to review hundreds of cases and bring their diagnostic uh, differential diagnosis up to date with the current criteria. So as well as working sort of in the experimental neuropathology, I do have the opportunity to work and looking at more of the diagnostic criteria as well uh, with cases that have been donated to various brain banks because we get sort of sent different cases from different brain banks, uh, depending on what expertise they need to look at those cases as well. 
Thanks, Tamin. That's really interesting because thinking about diagnostic criteria, because that's something that clinical neuropathologists, they use in order to be able to make these uh, post-mortem diagnosis. Um, and it's interesting to think about how we have a consensus on what that criteria is for these different diseases, but that it's important to continually think about updating these mm -hmm. um, in light of information that we have. So that's interesting that that was something that you've been involved in and also something that you continue to be interested in. Yeah, yeah, definitely important. And I think we, I think people don't realise that when, say, a brain with Alzheimer's disease, for example, has been donated 20 years ago, we they obviously don't know, unless we go back and look at it, whether it had, you know, co-depositions of TDP43 and alpha-synuclein, for instance. So there's that constant, you know, going back and looking at these cases to make sure that the right cases are being used for the right scientific research projects. Absolutely. Um, so, Dan, we spent some time working at the same facility at Newcastle University, although we worked in adjacent labs. And it's been really great to see the progress that you've been making in your research and in your career over the past few years, which you've already alluded to. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research and the things that you're interested in at the moment? We did, of course, work in the same lab. And, uh, and likewise, it's been great to see everything you've been doing at Teesside as well, such as your... Um, your ARUK day yesterday, which was which was great to see with with Ahmed, who actually supervised my PhD. Um, so the things that excite me, um, in contrast to, to Tamarin, I think alpha synuclein is really interesting. Um, so things that I find so things that we find interesting are, um, you know, we have these protein aggregates in a number of different diseases, including in Lewy body diseases like uh, dementia with Lewy bodies and Parkinson's disease, but we don't really know what they're doing. You know, and the questions we like to ask are, what exactly is this protein aggregate doing? Is it harming the cell? Is it protecting the cell? And trying to look beyond the the, simple, the simplicities of protein aggregates and trying to understand things at a more functional level. There's a few things that we're doing at the minute that I think are really interesting. So uh, some of the work we've been doing has been trying to understand what's different between a cell that has a Lewy body compared to cells that don't have Lewy bodies. So trying to understand what, how they're actually affecting cells. We do this with single cell fluorescent microscopy. We also um, have questions about what is actually making alpha synuclein stick together in the first place. What most people may not realize is that most risk genes for Lewy body diseases like Parkinson's disease encode lysosomal enzymes. These are enzymes that normally break down lipids. So what can these lipids tell us? And in particular, it's a class of lipids called sphingolipids, uh, which are like waxy uh, structural lipids. And uh, they can also be involved in signaling as well. And we're quite interested in what these sphingolipids are doing. So something we've also been working on is sphingolipid disorders that affect children. So these are neurodegenerative diseases that occur in children that are linked to Lewy body diseases by a shared gene. So a good, the, probably the best example of this is Gaucher disease, which is caused by GBA1, biallelic GBA1 mutations. But heterozygous GBA1 mutations are risk factors for Parkinson's disease. So trying to understand the links between these two, and in particular by studying alpha-synuclein in the brains of children who've sadly succumbed to these conditions, we think can provide new insights. And I'm really excited about this area of work, because the more we look at, the more we keep finding interesting alpha-synuclein things. Thanks for that, Dan. So it's really interesting how you can maybe take things that you're finding from looking at these, maybe what could be considered as rarer conditions, but can then inform research on conditions like dementia of Lewy bodies, which are more common um, and can maybe provide some mechanistic insights into what might be going on. 
Yeah, because I mean, to some extent, these conditions are um, their cause is much more clear because we know that there is a loss of function of a particular gene. We can work out what that gene does if we don't already know. And it provides a tangible link between the dysfunction of a particular process and the accumulation of alpha-synuclein. I kind of think of it as a bit like reverse genetics almost. It's like instead of we're looking for genetic risk, we're actually looking at associations in a biological sense. And and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting area. And I think most importantly for people affected by dementia, a very... I always think the really important message from this is that it challenges the assumption that dementia is just an inevitable consequence of aging, because this is a problematic view because it fosters a spirit of like therapeutic nihilism, where it's almost like there's nothing we can do because we can't stop aging. But when we observe, you know, seed competent alpha-synuclein pathology in the brain of a baby that was 10 months old with Crabbe disease, that suggests that this is biology that's dysfunctional not just a process of aging. And of course, something that's broken, we can potentially fix. We probably can't stop aging, at least sadly, not in my lifetime. But so I think it's a, it's a, it's a more realistic goal. Thanks, Dan. And finally, Laura, you manage the Southwest Dementia Brain Bank based at the University of Bristol. And you also managed to somehow juggle that with completing your PhD during your time whilst you've been working there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your PhD research? I know that that was a while ago that you completed that now, but would you like to share that with us? And and also, more broadly speaking, whether your roles opened up opportunities to collaborate uh, with research or on other research projects? Sure. So I was lucky enough to join the Brain Bank as a um, technician in 2004, and I was even luckier still under the directors of the Brain Bank to be able to do a part-time PhD which I have to say, I didn't finish until 2014. So it was eight long years of part-time PhD, as well as working in the brain bank. It was fondly termed the never-ending thesis, although I'm glad to say it did end at some point. It was a fascinating project, or at least I found it fascinating. It was on the uh, renin-angiotensin system, uh, which is an important enzyme pathway and signaling system. And um, the RAS, as we call it, so renin-angiotensin system, is particularly interesting because it's targeted by antihypertensive drugs and very little is actually known about those effects on the brain um, and how they affect people at risk of Alzheimer's disease or in the early stages of the disease. But there is uh, more so now than when I was doing my PhD, there's a considerable body of evidence suggesting links between vascular risk factors such as hypertension and Alzheimer's disease risk and then there's also increasing evidence that antihypertensive therapies that target the RAS might be of benefit to cognition, um, even in people who are not experiencing cognitive decline. So those are some really interesting areas. My role has certainly been incredible in the way it's developed over the years, obviously um, doing some research on donated tissue as well as the main purpose of my role now is really to un underpin other people's research. And I have to say, I feel that I've underpinned more research than I could ever have undertaken myself as a research scientist. Uh, that is really rewarding. Um, I think in about the last five years, we've provided around 37,000 samples to researchers all over the world. And that's resulted in about 100 publications in peer reviewed journals. So it's quite some output. 
Um, a lot of that I have been lucky enough to be involved in um, some direct collaboration and some of the science as well. Although, as I'm sure my colleagues on the call will say, there's, there's a lot of science in the process of brain banking itself. What led on from my PhD, which was particularly interesting, but I have to say wasn't my work. Um, we're really interested in Bristol in what our professor calls the bench to bedside approach. So what we're doing in the lab and how that translates to people who are living with these diseases at the moment. One such drug trial that happened was the radar trial in Bristol, which um, gave people in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease uh, an antihypertensive uh, drug, a commonly prescribed drug, and then looked at whether or not that affected their cognition or their progression within the disease. So this earliest work was necessary from donated brain tissue that led to a drug trial in individuals living with Alzheimer's disease. So it's really important to point out to people that although we're talking about post-mortem uh, deceased donors, this does actually impact people who are living with these diseases today. I think that's really interesting, Laura, because and I think we might mention this uh, later on when we come to some of our later questions, but often people who do, shall we say, the kind of fundamental research which might be working on preclinical models or doing cellular work. And if they don't have any involvement um, in neuropathology or doing anything with postmortem brain tissue, it's sometimes it can be quite hard to explain the importance of it because it's almost like, well, it's the end stage of the disease. How do you kind of explain how that can inform the cause of the disease, the pathogenesis of it and the progression of it when we're looking at end stage? And sometimes it's like, how do we explain this to people who are basic neuroscientists or fundamental neuroscientists, what we can actually learn from that and how can that then inform those earlier parts of the processes of biomedical research? So really interesting to hear how you've been involved in those other projects as well. What we're going to do now is move on to thinking about what we can learn from neuropathology, the contribution that it can make to helping us understand the causes of neurodegenerative diseases that lead to dementia and ultimately help us identify new diagnostic markers and develop new therapies. So Laura, let's start with you. Without brain banks, it would really be impossible to do any neuropathology research. And I'm really keen to hear more about the importance of brain banking and the process that's involved if, for example, somebody wants to donate their brain for research, what's the process that is involved in that? So obviously I'm slightly biased, but I think brain banking is incredibly important um, because human brain tissue really has been critical to nearly all of the major advances that we've had in dementia research. We're lucky enough in Bristol to have a register of potential donors. So about 650 people at the moment who have committed to donate their brain after they die specifically for dementia research. It's important and um, all of the brain banks in the UK, of which there are currently 10, um, it's really important that people pre-register for brain donation. When I first started at the Brain Bank, we used to accept many what we now term ad hoc donations. So donations from people who weren't part of a clinical cohort or who we didn't have much information about them as a person and their life. We're realising now that it's those those types of donations, although they have had their place and been very important, they're, they're not what we need now. What we need is highly characterised cohorts of individuals from which we can provide tissue and data to, to the 
research scientists to get the best results. So we asked people to pre-register by contacting their local brain bank. Um, we then put some primary checks in place and, um, of course, are hopefully notified at the time of a donor's death. Brain banks have a really important role at the time of a donor's death. A lot of the time, I feel that we're making someone's last wishes come true. We're helping them make a difference. And it's also really important to families, I think, to know that their loved one's death um, perhaps has some additional meaning. It can give people quite a lot of comfort. We handle all of the arrangements at the time of a donor's death. So we will liaise with their GP if they died in the community or uh, the doctor or consultant if they died in a hospital setting. We work with the family appointed funeral director and um, we make all of the arrangements associated with the donation to try to limit the impact that it has on the family at an already difficult time. We have to get all of our brain donations within 72 hours and we request uh, from local mortuaries all over the southwest uh, that we receive the brain whole and we also receive a sample of cerebrospinal fluid which can be really important later on for researchers for biomarker studies. When we receive the brain we perform a dissection. Half of the brain is uh, dissected and frozen uh, rapidly frozen to start with at minus 150 degrees celsius um, and then later long-term storage at minus 80. The other half of the brain we fix in formalin and that's the um, tissue that's really important for us to be able to obtain this neuropathological diagnosis which we have to have on every single donor before that tissue is made available to researchers. It sounds quite similar to the processes that we used when I worked at um, the Glasgow Brain Injury Research Group and part of my role there was involved in managing the the brain bank that we had there and it sounds like there's very similar processes do, do you take brain donations from across the UK or is it just within the region that's close to where the hospital is? So we in Bristol actually cover quite a large geographical mm. uh, region so we do cover the whole of the southwest um, we don't cover the whole of the UK we have tried to keep it to within about a 200 mile radius of Bristol the main reason for that is because most researchers want post-mortem delay tissue uh, to have the shortest possible delay. So we are an entirely charity funded resource. Our staff members use their own vehicles to transport brain tissue back to our hospital in Bristol. So we can't go too far afield because it would result in longer post-mortem delays, increased costs. Um, and potentially be detrimental to the quality of the tissue if we weren't able to get it back in time and kept in certain conditions for cold storage prior to dissection. That's certainly one of the challenges we had because we received brains from all over the UK because we were specifically looking at brain injury cases. And because of a lot of media coverage around, uh, particularly around repeated head injuries in contact spots, we were started to get a lot of uh, registered interest in, in brain donations, particularly from former athletes who were elderly and had gone on to develop dementia or their family members had contacted us about that. So we would potentially get brains from anywhere in the UK. And there was a whole process of, as you said, thinking about the post-mortem delay. Um, we would have to request that the tissue was stored for up to two weeks in formalin before it then be sent to us. And sometimes that would lead to that variability in tissue quality, as you mentioned, and then that can 
have knock-on effects later down the line when you're processing the tissue, staining the tissue, and then um, quantifying the, the proteins and things like that afterwards. So it's it's really, really, um, all these little steps along the process are really, really important and need to be thought about, uh, not just for diagnostics, but for also for if you're using the, the tissue for experimental reasons as well. So I think that one of the interesting things about neuropathology is as we're working with post-mortem tissue, we're typically looking at late stage disease, as I mentioned earlier, but our objective is usually, or at least our long-term research objective is to try and understand what's happening at the beginning of the disease process, as well as the progression of it, whatever the disease or condition is that we're interested in. It's almost like with neuropathology, the end is where we start from. Tamarin, can you tell us a little bit about the potential for neuropathology, uh, for neuropathology research to translate into promising biomarkers for early diagnosis of neurodegenerative diseases or any potential clinical therapies? Yeah, sure. So as we highlighted, it is the, the end stage of the disease we're looking at. But I think looking at the actual human brain that has the disease is you know vitally important for us to look at the proteins look at the lipids look at what everything everything else that is going on in the human brain for the diseases um but also to recognize that this is just a piece in the puzzle so for us at ucl we work with the clinicians at the dementia research center and most of the the, the people that they start sign up for brain donation are donated to queen square brain bank but having that complete circle as laura's mentioned having that clinical workup where we have the detailed clinical history of these cases. We have in-life um, biofluid samples, either plasma, CSF. We then have the bright or the imaging as well that they've had during life. We then they then donate their brain to at postmortem for research. We have that full sort of story of that individual that we can then reflect back on once we have the underlying diagnosis, because often what they're diagnosed with in life is not what we see in the brain, particularly with the frontal temporal dementias. You know, if somebody's diagnosed with behavioural variant, it's one of three, maybe four different types of pathologies. Um, so until we get that definitive diagnosis, we can obviously look at the imaging, we can look at potential biomarkers of the samples that are taken during life. But I think we, we won't know until we get a big enough cohort of, of patients with that definitive diagnosis, what we can actually do or make the most of the in-life studies that are being done. So from my point of view, working with the clinicians look, and looking at everything as pieces of the puzzle, working with the clinicians, working with people taking the skin biopsies to work up the IPS cells, working with the, the um, people working on the biofluids, working with uh, bioinformaticians that we need more and more now for large data sets. I think the neuropath analysis of the brain is essential, but it is only a key to being able to solve these diseases. I think that's a good way of putting it almost like a piece of the puzzle. We'll be coming on to this shortly, but I mean, one of the starkest things that I found was, as you mentioned, that sometimes that disparity between what someone's been diagnosed with in life, not matching up to them what you see in the neuropath um, analysis. So we'll we'll come on to that in a second. Uh, but I just want to, to come over to you, Dan, if that's okay, because as we mentioned about you being now well established as an independent researcher, you've obtained uh, successive research fellowships. I'm really keen to know 
you know, within your research, what has been probably, would you say, the most surprising or the most interesting findings about uh, the pathological mechanisms of, of Lewy body diseases that you've come across? I think it's a really good question. The problem I think that I have is that I find so many things interesting that it's very, very hard to to sort of distill it into one or two points. I mean, uh, you know, I, th I think research is a journey in many ways. And I think there are a couple of, you know, different sort of moments that come across that, that really alter your direction on things. I think for me, it was probably quite a long time ago, but I think the most interesting thing, and it's kind of, I suppose, set the scene for the rest of my career, really, is when I sat, I used to do a, a technique called stereology, which you may be familiar with. It's a method where you can sequentially section areas of the brain, you count a, a subset of cells, and then you can estimate the total number of cells within a within a given region. Uh, Ahmed, who, who works with uh, CAM, is, uh, is an expert in this. So, I, you know, I was doing my PhD. I, you know, had a, a fairly, I would say, straightforward worldview. Lewy bodies cause cell death. Cell death equals symptoms. But I was doing stereology in all these brain regions, and we could never find any relationship whatsoever between Lewy bodies and the, the loss of neurons in these regions. So this just meant that we looked harder, and we looked at more, more and more different things. You know, we would look at... Um, you know, we would look at specific types of cells um, and try and correlate them. But I think the difficulty was that we were we were trying to maybe, you know, put a square peg into a, into a hole, as it were. It's it's very difficult because it didn't seem that there was any relationship with it at all. And you know, if you look in the literature as well, nobody really finds any relationship. And yet, the majority of drugs that are currently in development for Lewy body diseases are typically antibodies that target the aggregation of alpha synuclein. So this was a this I say this was probably the biggest moment. It wasn't just one study; it was a number of studies that we did over time, and you know also cell loss in regions that didn't have any Lewy bodies and preservation of cells in regions with Lewy bodies. So I think this is probably the biggest bit because it's set the scene for everything we've done since, and it's I suppose given us the the reason, the rationale to to investigate these things further. So that would be my answer to that. Thanks, Dan. And do you still use stereology in your research? Because it's quite a time-consuming process, isn't it? Even though um, I often hear people talking about it being gold standard, but I don't really know that many people that use it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of eager not to um, uh, <laughs> disagree too much with Ahmed, um, but um, I guess that, no, we don't is the short answer. Uh, we're increasingly moving towards um, slide scanning. So we slide scan images and uh, we can use AI-based pipelines, which can quantify things like neuronal density. Um, to date, I have never done stereology on a single brain region and find a different result than what I got from looking at one slide and measuring the density of cells. So I think it is probably gold standard, but a luxury that probably few can afford in terms of time, because of course, time is the greatest investment that you make, particularly if you've got students. Um, you know, it's a lot of their PhD is, is taken up. So I'm very glad I did it. I'm very glad I understand it, but it's not something we routinely use, no. I love slide scanners as well. <laughs> it just, just <laughs> saves so much time, doesn't it? Um, okay, so let's move on then. So having worked uh, myself in neuropathology labs involved in both diagnostics and research i know that for a big motivation for people to to donate their brains usually can be for family members to be able to get confirmation of which brain disease might have caused their loved one's dementia 
as we know, and as we've kind of mentioned, uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, they can only be confirmed post-mortem. And that's not something that is routinely done. So I just want to ask Laura, what are your thoughts on how someone may have been clinically diagnosed with something during their life? As we mentioned earlier, that can often be quite different to the neuropathological diagnosis post-mortem. And then maybe Tamron, you can um, jump in on this one as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we we find approximately 40% of the cases that we receive in the brain bank do not, the neuropathological diagnosis does not match the clinical diagnosis. And in some cases, it's an entirely different cause. But in a lot of cases, um, I was staggeringly more cases nowadays, we find mixed pathology and really significant mixed pathology um very complicated cases with maybe four different types of contributing pathology and that becomes really difficult to unpick if you're not going to involve neuropathology in research it's when you start to look at these cases i think you can really start to understand perhaps why we're having so many problems with developing drugs to either prevent or treat dementia or dementias, I should say. I'd love to see, I mean, I'm dreaming now, but I'd love to see um, when we're looking at clinical trials in the future, I'd love to see a brain banking element introduced into those trials with the ability to actually go back and reanalyze the results of trials. I realize it would be probably a significant time later, but I think we're missing a trick in terms of drugs that we may potentially have missed or that were on the cusp of showing differences um, or benefits to people with dementia. If you think about the clinical trial setting, if perhaps up to 40% of the people that you've recruited for an Alzheimer's disease trial either don't have Alzheimer's disease or have contributing pathology that perhaps may change the outcomes or change the outcomes looked at within that trial, I think you can start to see the challenges in treating these diseases. Um, We're also really interested in Bristol in the um, lifestyle factors at the moment, which seems to be increasing of of increasing interest to many people with some recent papers being shown that um, large numbers of cases of dementia could potentially be preventable, but Cognitive decline could be dramatically slowed with lifestyle changes that we could all make now. I'm really interested in seeing those types of changes that even somebody can make after having a diagnosis of, say, Alzheimer's disease or dementia to find that they still see benefit. Those are the types of things that I'm really interested in um, that could make a difference to people now without drugs, you know, with very basic interventions, with diet, with lifestyle, with um, modifying risk factors, such as those that were I was really interested in in my PhD, so midlife hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, all of these things we are trying to look at in our donors as well. So it gives us a bit of an advantage. So we're not just looking at brain tissue and not just looking at cerebrospinal fluid. Um, We in Bristol are part of the National Brains for Dementia Research Project, which is a cohort of individuals from whom we collect uh, data, so cognitive data, but lifestyle data as well, for many years in advance of their death and their eventual brain donation. And that's proving to be a really interesting cohort in terms of the types of work that can be done looking both just at the data, but the data in conjunction with tissue later. 
Um, and, and Tamarin's point as well, we also try to uh, take blood samples from this living cohort so that that can also be applied both to their data and to their tissue later. Thanks, Laura. And sometimes I find myself thinking about things like mixed pathologies and, and wondering, as you mentioned about clinical trials and, and developing of new drug treatments. And, and I wonder whether if people have these mixed pathologies that are progressing at maybe different rates or to different extents, if you were to treat, say, one, does that mean that potentially, yes, you might slow down or delay the progression of that disease? Will that allow another one to then develop and progress at a faster rate? And potentially that then becomes the dominant pathology that then is driving the dementia in that individual? And and how would you get the balance then of having these different drugs that you'd have to treat for these potential different disease pathologies? And I think that's going to be that those complexities are going to be the real challenges around treating any of these diseases that we're talking about that lead to dementia. I think I can respond to that one. I guess the answer is we we just don't know how the, the co-pathologies affect each other from a seeding point of view. Do, does one initiate the other? We also need, and that's where neuropathology helps as well, is to look at where the different pathologies start. So we know with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's disease, they start in different brain regions. And even with Alzheimer's disease, the A-beta and the tau start in different brain regions completely. But it's also, there's two two aspects I think it would be good to mention is that we, we're looking at the pathologies we know. We don't know what we're not seeing yet. Um, so in 20 years time, what will be what will we be screening all these brains for again? So we know from the RNA binding proteins, we see a lot of pathologies uh, with the RNA binding proteins across the different neurodegenerative diseases. Um, are they having an impact on the clinical manifestations? We Obviously, we don't know at the moment. And just to touch on, which we've not really mentioned, is the, no the number of cases that we receive that are cognitively normal in life, but actually have a huge amount of these pathologies in their brains as well to look at the difference between those and the cognitively impaired uh, cases I think is is very understudied at the moment. And I guess through collaborating with other people from other disciplines is going to help a lot with that and if we're wanting to develop things like new methods new technologies often we need that cross disciplinary work in order to do that and Tamron I know that throughout your career you've collaborated with people in other disciplines including clinicians and, and biochemists uh, as, as two examples so um, whilst we're on this can you you kind of talk a little bit about how combining neuropathology with other fields can really help to advance dementia research? Yeah sure I mean I think it's essential as we've already meant all three of us have mentioned it's essential that we do collaborate with um other, with other disciplines or the, the clinicians in the field as well that see these patients during life. Um, you know, nobody can do it single-handedly. We need different inputs. We need different perspectives. And even speaking with members of the charity, lay members that give you a different insight, a different perspective of these diseases could often trigger something that you've thought, you know, thought about but not actually connected it with the research as well. So I always find speaking to the lay members really important. Um, but we are, you know, neuropathology in, I think we're all on the same page, is essential, but we, it's not going to be, you know, the, the magic key to unlocking these diseases. We need to all work together to, to find a cure for these diseases. Thanks, Tamarin. And uh, my final question in this 
section is for you, Dan. So thinking about some of those challenges around mixed pathologies and these things that we've talked about, what recent advancements in neuropathological techniques do you think could significantly impact dementia research or even just neuropath research more broadly? I think there are a number of levels to that. The first thing I would say is just as an addition to what everyone else said, I mean, of course, neuropathology is so important. And I think one of the things that really underlies why neuropathology is so important is because we don't know what causes these diseases. If you want to model a genetic disease, it's not that difficult to do because you basically, you can genetically modify a mouse or you can genetically modify a cell line, or you can take a cell from that person and convert it to pluripotency and turn it into something else. The problem is we don't have that luxury with most of these diseases. If we want to make a model, we have to know what causes the disease to recapitulate it in that model. We don't know what causes these diseases in almost every case. So that's that's the great challenge. And that's where I think neuropath- why neuropathology is vital, because you can look at any processes you want in a cell. It doesn't necessarily mean that's what's happening in the brain. And you need to then take it back to confirm that what you do see. And I honestly think that the field has been held back to some extent in some cases by observations and model systems that simply do not occur in the human brain. And that's why neuropathology for me will always be absolutely vital. In terms of the advances that I I think, and I mean, there are so many advances, I think, that have really, really helped. Um, It's probably not something funders want to hear, but I honestly think one of the most valuable things we could do, um, aside from, sorry, let me go back one step. I think we're already doing some of those things now, the collection of large cohorts that are clinically really well characterized. That is huge. The amount of cases that we have from a long time ago that we know virtually nothing about, you know, we we need to get better at this and we need to understand, you know, as Laura said, you know, getting this rich clinical information, as Tam said, you know, biomarkers through, through, through life. And then what I also think is also new advancements in terms of techniques. So, um, you know, I know, I know Tamron, for example, has used things like proteomics. I don't think funders want to hear this, but sometimes I think one of the best things we could do is go in without a hypothesis and literally just see what's different. Stratify cases on a number of different levels and see what is different. Take an absolutely a hypothetical view. Hypothesis-driven research is superb, but sometimes if we really want to crack something, I think that a large cohort that is really, really deeply phenotyped with an, you know, a shotgun type technique like that, I think would would advance the field more than than lots of hypothesis-driven studies, in my opinion. Thanks, Dan. And I, I'm interested to know what you think about, I mean, we talked a little bit about like slide scanning and, and that obviously lends itself well to digital pathology. I'm still in two minds and quite a lot of people that work in pathology are very much in two minds about how digital pathology can really help speed up a lot of processes. But you know, the accuracy of it can never really replace some of the, the more traditional methods that we use to, to do like image analysis, uh, quantifying uh, cells, quantifying the presence of protein. So w- w- where do you kind of sit on that? And and I guess I'm, I'm seeing more of these kind of softwares that are introducing AI as well. And I, I'm a little bit skeptical about the specificity of some of these software. So I'm, I'm just keen to, to hear what you think about that and anybody else that wants to jump in. I, I kind of think there's there's a number of different levels to that. So on the one hand, do I think that AI in the near future will replace a hospital pathologist to render a diagnosis? Almost certainly not. In fact, I would say a categorical no in the near future, uh, especially when judgments have to be made. 
you know, any, any of these systems is good at saying something is something or is not. Can it form a holistic picture of something and make a judgment on that basis? Probably not, and probably not in the near future. If it can determine the amount of a, of a particular area that's brown, yes, it's quite good at that. So if you're using DAB staining and you want to know the percentage area that is you know, positive with DAB staining, it probably okay at that. If you if it you wanted to you know determine the amount of neurons within a region that have been stained with NUN, for example, it's probably quite good at that. Um, so I guess in in a research context, would it enable us to have much 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 larger cohorts um, quantifying something relatively simple like you know immunohistochemistry uh, percentage area stained? I think it probably can be used for that. Um, in terms of rendering diagnoses or making complex judgments based on a, a number of different variables, probably not, and probably not in the near future either. If I can, if I can just add to that as well, I think it's important to look at. Yes, I think it's a good idea the the AI and the, the digital um, images that we produce from the stained slides. But if we think about the clinical field. Uh, a patient will go in for an MRI scan. That MRI scan is stored for multiple researchers to use for various research projects. But from a brain bank point of view, and Laura can agree or disagree, but will probably agree, is that we hand tissue out for various projects. We could have 10 people with 10 hippocampal slices staying in a H&E, an A-beta or a tau. Whereas if we digitize these slides, we can then give the images out, which saves the brain tissue, saves time. So I think there's different aspects to the digital world that we can look at, which will be beneficial for neuropath research. Um, but I agree with Dan, I think for the diagnosis, no, but I think for the research, pushing the research forward and speeding up research, I think it will be, um, it will be essential to, to drive that aspect of the research. Before we go, I just have a question that might help some of the newer scientists who might be listening to the show. So um, anybody that kind of wants to jump in and give an answer to this, then you're very welcome. What advice would you give to young scientists who might be interested in neuropathology and might be interested in either pursuing research in this area or other roles that um, like Laura's either as a technician or, and then progressing through to, to being a manager of a brain bank what what advice would you give to them Laura yes can definitely start with this one I had uh, so so my advice in a nutshell is to make the most of every single training and development opportunity that comes your way and that's both in the workplace and outside of it because my personal experience is that um, skills are transferable no matter how random they might seem. I had the weirdest range of work experience before I joined the Brain Bank, ranging from um, working in a chip shop to I did eight years in Tesco, uh, which I also carried on along my alongside my technical role when I first joined the Brain Bank. Um, but as part of that, I did some training in pharmacy dispensing and I used to work in the pharmacy. And I actually found a lot of those skills um, talking to people perhaps when they weren't feeling very well, confidentiality, dealing with people who might be distressed, um, dealing with confidential information. All of those skills were really very transferable to my role in the brain bank, which is, although it centers around post-mortem brain tissue, my role really is about dealing with people. It's about dealing with potential donors, um, putting their fears to rest, reassuring their families, um, 
counselling them through the process of brain donation and then feeding back this end diagnosis and also working with researchers. So there are lots and lots of people elements in science that I think sometimes if you're at the bench a lot, you can forget a little. Um, so, yeah, that's my advice. All experience, doesn't matter what it is, you can bring something new to your role or to your career progression. Um, hopefully that's useful. Thanks, Laura. And I would second that because I actually used to work as a dispenser in a pharmacy as well. So there were a lot of us. There are a lot of us. I've, I've met a few people actually who that's, yeah, that's been an inroad for them. Yeah, and I can totally see how a lot of those skills can translate to, to research or to other roles um, within academia and within research as well. Um, Tamarin, I'll go over to you next. Yeah, I didn't work in a pharmacy and I can't see how transferable my skills were from McDonald's. But <laughs> well, I just wanted to say that I can't really come on a neuropath um, podcast without mentioning the, the British Neuropath Society. Um, so scientists or uh, people wanting to embark on a career in neuropathology, it's a good place to start. Uh, we have a website. Um, I'll be taking over the presidency at, in the beginning of February, which I'm mightily scared about. But I do want to increase the profile of the society for younger scientists, neuroscientists. It's not a society just for neuropathologists. It's for everybody working in the neuropath field that can come together, share skills, uh, and just enable the research to, to progress, really. So if you are a young scientist uh, looking to come into this field, then reach out and we can put you in contact with a, a researcher working in your area that may be able to allow work placement, work shadowing, or even just have a conversation about how they uh, got into the field. So do reach out. Thanks, Tamron. And the, the BNS meeting in a two weeks time, I think? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's all going to plan so far, the organisation, so fingers crossed it goes okay. Yeah, I having a, I ran an event yesterday and I know everything that goes into to these things and uh, it can be very stressful, but the feeling afterwards is great. So fingers crossed it'll all go well. Um, and this is, so, sorry, it's just to say the symposium's on neurodegeneration as well. So uh, And that's on the Wednesday, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Dan, anything that you want to add? I'm not really sure about anything unique. I mean, I would definitely um, echo Tamarin's comments about the British Neuropathological Society. I can honestly say of all the academic conferences that exist, um, it's the only one I will definitely go to every year. Um, it is that good. It's quite a, it's, it's a relatively, uh, it's not like ADPD, you know, the, the Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease conference where it's, it's large and overwhelming and you can't cover it. You know, you can't see everything you want to see. It's, you know, it's one session. Everyone's working on a very similar area and um, they're all using the techniques that you use. So it feels like every talk is is is, is definitely relevant. So, I, I mean, I just just echoing, I guess, that and also just to not be afraid to reach out to people, um, you know, because you find most people in this field are really friendly, really supportive. And, you know, they want to help if they can. So I would not be at all afraid to do that. And um I'd also really recommend that anyone listening does it because it's the best thing I've ever done. And um, and hopefully it will be for the, for anyone listening as well, if it's something they're interested in. Really, really great advice. Thank you. And a uh, nice little plug for the BNS as well. Maybe from this, we'll get some partnerships between Dementia Research and the BNS going forward. We can have maybe a series of podcast episodes that might have been birthed from this one. Um, but thank you all for that great advice.
I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. If you just can't get enough of this topic, visit the Dementia Researcher website where you will find a full transcript, biographies of our guests, blogs and much more on the topic. I would like to thank our incredible guests, Daniel Erskine, Laura Palmer and Tamarin Lashley. I'm Kama Amin Ali and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Bye. 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 <laughs> The Dementia Researcher podcast was brought to you by University College London with generous funding from the UK National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. Dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk